Okay. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to get into one of the most controversial texts in the book of Matthew, probably in the New Testament. Wars have been fought over this. But we're going to read it and expound on it and hope for the Holy Spirit to tell us what it means. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. If you're at home, I hope we'll have the the verses on screen for you, but please open your Bible because we are going to go verse by verse today and you're going to want to know where I am. And so you're going to need your Bible to, to guide you there. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, you have called us into your kingdom. You have given us your spirit. You have caused us to be born again, and you have caused us to bow down to Christ, our Lord. And so, Lord, it's it's a small thing to ask you that you would give us understanding of your word by your Spirit's power this morning. We know that's the only way that we can understand who Jesus is. It's the only way we can understand what your word even means. Give us understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if we were to split Matthew's gospel, now we've been going through Matthew's gospel for for a long time. Dustin reminded me that he wasn't even here when we started. Um, So it's been a while, and, and we are getting at the end of the first part. If we were to split Matthew's gospel into two parts, the first part would be this this gradually building argument that Jesus is the Messiah. The second part that will begin next week would be the argument that the Messiah must die. This week, though, we are at the very peak of the mountain of argument number one. That Jesus is the Messiah. And if you've been tracking with us through this unfolding drama, you know that the question isn't just, is Jesus the Messiah? But as we've been reading, we see that there's, a, there's another question in the text 
And that question is, do the disciples know that Jesus is the Messiah? And we've seen, we've walked with them as they've, they've developed in their understanding of this. Think of all that they've been through. From their, from their calling there on the seaside, to, to Jesus' preaching, to those, to those moments of forced decision. Will we keep following him, even though he says that means turning from our families? Will we keep following him, even if we know that means we're going to be homeless? Will we keep following him if it means I can't be there for my dad's funeral? They've been, they've been challenged by Jesus. They've been challenged by the religious leaders. The religious leaders have questioned the disciples directly, again and again. And they've had to stand with Jesus during that time. We've seen Jesus respond forcefully to those religious leaders. We've seen these disciples nearly drowned, not once but twice, in storms where they got to see Jesus' power and they got to see Jesus' authority. These disciples have been given front row seats to see Jesus cast out demons and, and heal people and feed people. They have seen with their own eyes Jesus fulfilling the promises that were given to the prophets. Most importantly, and I think that's, this is important this morning or this evening, they were given exclusive insider information about the kingdom. Jesus revealed to the disciples secrets about the kingdom that nobody else received. They have, if we're kind of counting, if we're tallying this, they have all that they need in order to be able to affirm Jesus is the Messiah. And the question is, well, will they? After all, it's, it's these same disciples that Jesus has said repeatedly, Oh, you of little faith. So will they make the right confession when Jesus asks that question? Well, this week's text answers that question definitively, doesn't it? And then it moves us into part two of Matthew. But there's something else significant that we see this week. So significant, in fact, that I almost split this into two sermons. But I didn't, because it's impossible. In the midst of Jesus' questioning of the disciples, he reveals to us why he called the disciples in the first place. We can see that, that it's kind of like a ribbon-cutting moment, hard hat-wearing, ribbon-cutting Kodak moment where, where Jesus breaks ground with a golden shovel. We get to see Jesus unveil his plan, the establishment of his church. And all of that happens in only eight little verses, doesn't it? There's only eight verses here, but I think you're going to see that these are eight very, very important verses. Two of the most pivotal moments in the history of the world happen in these eight verses. Peter, the leader of the twelve, confesses Jesus is the Christ. And that's huge. And then Jesus gives the disciples their assignment. So let's start. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, last week, I don't know if you remember, but last week we were down by the Sea of Galilee. So we were south of where we are this week. And Jesus and the disciples have made the 25-mile walk from the north end of the Sea of Galilee up to 
uh, a town called Caesarea, which happens to be in uh, the district of Philippi. That means Philip the Tetrarch is leader of this district, so we call it Caesarea Philippi. Uh, That's where that name comes from. And there's a number of theories on why Jesus chose this location for what's about to take place. But none of them is really definitive. We don't really know why they go up there. If you want to talk to me more about that, we can talk about that after the sermon. Uh, I have my own ideas, but I'm not going to speculate in a sermon because that's wasting your time. The point is, this is a retreat. All right, so it's kind of a retreat for the disciples. They're, they're there. There's no crowds there. It's just Jesus. It's the disciples. And Jesus finally gets to ask them this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, we've seen this phrase a number of times in Matthew's Gospel, Son of Man. It's, it's kind of that, that bible language that Jesus use, uses to refer to himself. He doesn't, at this point, outright call himself Messiah. He doesn't just come up to people and say, I am Messiah. He says, I am son of man. And he leaves that to be kind of ambiguous. There's a spider. Hello, spider. (laughs) Bees, spiders, we're outdoors. It's God's creation. Well, Jesus calls himself son of man, and he does that because it's ambiguous. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the son of man, it, it usually means human. Right, So someone who describes himself as the Son of Man or someone who God refers to as Son of Man, they're showing that that person is weak, that they're, that they're mortal. And, and usually that's a contrast to God himself, not a Son of Man. God, in contrast to humans, is glorious. He's majestic. He's eternal. He's immortal. So that's one of the contrasts that the use of the Son of Man is meant to bring out in our minds. But the other use of the phrase Son of Man we see in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, and we'll get there in our Wednesday night studies. But in Daniel 7, the phrase Son of Man refers to this conquering king, the Messiah, the conquering king who brings judgment. He's the one whom God Almighty gives dominion over all creation to. And Jesus, when he uses Son of man, to refer to himself, you don't really know. Is he talking about Daniel 7 or he's talking about the rest of the Old Testament? And I think that's intentional. In some ways, he means both, doesn't he? He's born of a woman. He's human, like any other person. He's fully human. He's weak. He's mortal. You know, he's going to die. But he's also the divine one to whom is given all authority. And we'll see that as well. Regardless, though, when Jesus asks this question, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? When he asks the disciples that question, he knows that they know that he's talking about himself. In fact, in in Mark's gospel, he records Jesus as asking, who do people say that I am? So that's what Jesus is asking. What are people saying about me? And then the disciples begin to give report of all the rumors that they've heard when people talk about Jesus. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, some say John the Baptist. Now we've seen that, haven't we? Just a a couple chapters back, Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Others say he's Elijah. Now that makes sense too. Elijah was a a miracle-working prophet. Jesus is doing many of the same miracles that 
Elijah did and many of the miracles that Elijah's protege, Elisha, did. He's calling for repentance like Elijah did. He's calling for people to reject idolatry like Elijah did. Very similar ministries if you're looking at them as prophets side by side. Add to that that in the Old Testament, the expectation was that Elijah would return before Judgment Day and you get this sense that the people who know their Bibles see that Jesus just might be that guy, Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah. Now that's interesting. We haven't seen any mention of Jeremiah yet in Matthew's Gospel. What is significant about Jeremiah's ministry? If you've read the book of Jeremiah recently, there's probably just a handful of you. Jeremiah was known for his fire and brimstone preaching. He preached against Israel's sin over and over and over again. In almost every chapter of Jeremiah, he's preaching against Israel's sin and he's foretelling Israel's destruction and their judgment. And so what what this tells us is that for the people who are hearing, they're in Jesus' day, they're hearing Jesus preach from town to town wherever they go, they're thinking, that sounds like Jeremiah. Because he's saying the same stuff. Repent, repent. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's interesting, isn't it? If, if you were, or I were to walk up to a random stranger outside the church and say, tell me something about the teaching of Jesus, what would they say? They'd probably say, judge not. Yes, yes lest ye be judged. They'd probably say something like, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And that's about the extent of what your average American knows about Jesus. But to the people who actually heard Jesus, the people who saw him preach and saw him confront the leaders of their day, what did they say about Jesus? That he was some live and let live flower child? No. No. They said, man, this guy's got fire in his eyes. He's like Jeremiah. Always talking about the coming judgment. Always talking about the coming kingdom. Always talking about repentance. It was so much a part of Jesus' message that it influenced what people thought about who he was. We keep going in this verse. and Others say he's one of the prophets. And this is a similar idea. Jesus' preaching and his miracles have people assured that he's some sort of prophet. If he's anything, he's some sort of prophet. They don't have another category for Jesus. Whether he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or someone else, all they can tell is he's a prophet. He's doing prophetic things. He's preaching with authority as one who was sent by God. Now, As I was reading this, I I was wondering, why did Jesus ask the disciples this question to begin with? I mean, he already knows the answer. Jesus already knows what the crowds think about him. He can see into their hearts. Plus, he's heard it. So why did Jesus ask the disciples what the crowds think about him? And I think verse 15 gives us a clue. Look at what happens in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? You see what Jesus is doing? He's setting up a contrast between 
the crowds, the, the men, the, the, the greater, everyone else, and the disciples. What do they say? What do you say? See, when it comes down to it, Jesus doesn't really care what the, what the, what the crowds think. He's not some egomaniacal leader who wants minute-by-minute updates about what his approval ratings are. That's not the point here. It's not what Jesus is fishing for. What Jesus is doing is setting the disciples apart. He's setting them apart from everyone else by saying, but what about you? He's pointing out the difference. You're not like everybody else. You're different. I called you. He wants the disciples to see, just in the way that he's asking this question, he wants them to see that they have a very unique calling. We'll talk more about their reply in a minute, but I want you to see this because it's important. Our calling isn't quite as foundational as the disciples. We are not apostles. We don't write scripture. But we have been called. If you're in Christ, you have been called. And when we were called, we were called out of the world. We are distinct from the world. While the world may think of Jesus one way, you and I know him. And we know him differently than the world does. While to the world, Jesus may be a madman or a philosopher or a bigot or a revolutionary, to us, he's our king, isn't he? He's our Lord. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's the head of our church. So listen, what the world thinks of Jesus should have absolutely zero bearing on what you think of Jesus. None whatsoever. As soon as you begin to worry about what the world thinks of your King Jesus, you will become ashamed of Jesus and you will remake him in a way that you believe the world will like more. And what have we accomplished when we do that? When we, when we recreate Jesus into someone acceptable for people whose hearts are in rebellion against God, what have we accomplished when we make Jesus more palatable All we've done is created a false idol for them to worship and have only added to their guilt before God. It's not loving. It's not loving. Do not worry about what the world thinks of Jesus, okay? Present him as he has revealed himself in his word and let the Holy Spirit transform hearts and minds. That's not your job. Let the Holy Spirit do the persuading because that is the work that he was sent into the world to do. Our calling is to be faithful voices of the king. The apostles are set apart from the world. You and I, if we've been called into Christ, we've been set apart from the world. Don't forget that. But let's not overlook the disciples answer. Who do they say that Jesus is? Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus asked this question to all of the disciples, but notice it's only Peter who replies. And what does that tell us? It doesn't tell us that only Peter is the one with the right answer, and the rest of them somehow missed it. I'll tell you that. It doesn't tell us that. And it doesn't tell us that somehow Peter is better or more important than the other disciples. Like we've seen before, and what Matthew was building up for us here, is that Peter is the spokesman of the disciples. He's their leader. He speaks on their behalf. When they have a question altogether, Peter asks the question. When they have an answer, Peter answers it. Sometimes Peter is right. Sometimes he's horribly wrong. Peter's answer here is spot on. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I've been using the word Messiah most of the time when I talk about Christ's identity, Jesus' identity. But remember, Christ and Messiah are the same thing. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed king. Christ is the Greek word for the exact same thing. I use the word Messiah because I, I intentionally have to remind myself of what it means. If I say Christ, I begin to think of it as Jesus' last name. That's not his last name. It's his title. And somehow, for me at least, and I hope, I hope this is working for you too, when we use the word Messiah, it, it kind of interrupts that thinking. It reminds you it's a title. Peter accurately identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. And then he adds to it, Son of the living God, which is actually just another, say, another way of saying Messiah or Christ. I don't have time to get into why that's true, but it's true. This is the person who would represent Israel before God. All right, so Israel is Son of God, Adam is Son of God, Jesus is Son of God. He's the representative of Israel here before God. And Peter gets it right, doesn't he? Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Peter's right answer elicits an interesting response from Jesus, something that I would not have predicted, and probably you either. And pay careful attention when something unpredictable happens. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah, some of your Bibles actually say son of Jonah. And Jonah or John, that's just Peter's dad's name. Okay, so he's calling him by his, his name. You are the son of John, you're Peter. In the same way that Peter said, you are son of the living God, Jesus says, Peter, you're son of Jonah, John. But why does Jesus say that Peter is blessed? Back in chapter 13, Jesus used that same word, blessed, to talk about how the disciples were privileged. They were privileged to get insight into the kingdom. Matthew 13, 16. If you want to flip there, so you can see that I'm telling the truth. Matthew 13, 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So they're, they're blessed because they've been given special revelation. Same thing here. Peter is blessed because he understands that Jesus is Messiah. And how does he come to that conclusion? Look at verse 17. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, 
How does Peter know that Jesus is the Christ? Lots of questions today. How does Peter know that Jesus is the Christ? Because Jesus, his heavenly Father, revealed it to him. God himself chose to reveal Jesus' true identity to Peter. It's a divine blessing to know that Jesus is the Christ. There's no other way to know that Jesus is the Christ. It must be revealed to you. Look at what Jesus says. This does not happen through flesh and blood. That means humans didn't show you this. That's another way of saying human. I can tell you that Jesus is the Christ. Right? I can, I can say that from here. Jesus is the Christ. And you can even parrot it back to me. You can repeat it to me. But you will not truly believe that he is the Christ and understand what it means until God reveals it to you. Peter came to that conclusion the same way that every Christian after Peter came to that conclusion. Through God working in him. And if you're thinking right now, Dustin, it sounds like you're saying that Jesus is some sort of Calvinist. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not a helpful distinction. Jesus is revealing to us who God is and what authority and power God has. Jesus, his heavenly Father, is God of all creation. He created all that is. So track with me. God created all that is, and God has the right to reveal himself in his son to Peter and to withhold that revelation from the Pharisees. God has that right. He has the right the same way that he had the right to reveal himself to Abraham and keep himself hidden from the rest of the Chaldeans. He has the right to reveal himself to Moses and keep himself hidden from Pharaoh. He has the right, because he's God, to reveal himself to Israel and keep himself hidden from the Canaanites. Listen, no matter where you go in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, no matter where you go in the Bible or where you go throughout history, God has that right because he is God. God is not a Calvinist. God is God. And to think less of him is to think far too highly of humanity and far too lowly of God. How does Peter know that Jesus is the Christ? Because Jesus' heavenly Father reveals it to him. There is no other way he could have known. How do you know that Jesus is the Christ? Because our heavenly Father has shown mercy to you. He has been gracious to you. He has shown his forever love towards you. And he's brought you into his kingdom so that you could live eternally with him. That's grace. See, you and I are not somehow smarter than someone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. We are not, from our mother's wombs, born into the knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And we're not kingdom citizens by virtue of our having been born as American citizens, we joyfully live under Jesus' authority as king, 
not because of flesh and blood, but because God has shown us mercy. Despite our sinful hearts, despite our every inclination to want to be the gods and kings of our own lives, God in heaven has revealed Jesus to us as he really is. Messiah, our King, and by that grace and through that revelation and through our new birth, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into Messiah's kingdom. Friends, we are blessed, like Peter, blessed beyond what we can understand. Peter was blessed beyond his understanding. But Jesus is not finished declaring Peter's blessedness here. Look at verse 18. You think, oh, that was controversial. No, this is controversial. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, you already know about this. Some of you might. But there is a play of words going on here that is kind of lost in the English. Your Bible, if you have one with you, I promise you has a footnote that tells you what's going on. The name Peter in English comes from Petra in Greek, and Petra means rock. Right, Steve? Petra means rock. Did anybody listen to Petra growing up? No. Okay, there, there we go. Right. A few. Five people. Petra, this is where they got their name from. Petra means rock. You have to be 40 and up. I just, I just almost squeeze in. Uh, okay. All right. Let's move on. Petra means rock. That's a play on words that's happening here. Okay? So when Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my church, he's saying, and on this Petra, on this Peter, I will build my church. Theologians throughout the history of the church, going all the way back as far as we can, have always debated what Jesus means by this. What does Jesus mean when he says, this rock? Because Jesus doesn't say, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. He says, Peter, your name is Rock, and on this rock, and we don't know where Jesus' hands are, pointing, when he says this, on this rock, I will build my church. So we don't know what rock he's talking about, because it just says, this rock. It's ambiguous. Is Jesus saying that the church is built on Peter? That Peter is the founder, the rock, the foundation of the church? After all, he just called him rock, right? Seems to be pointing somewhere in that direction. It could also be, though, that Jesus is saying that the church is built on Peter's confession, right? Because Peter has just said, you are the Christ. Maybe when Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church, he's talking about that confession, that faith. Or maybe the church is built on Christ. Maybe Jesus was saying, you are Peter. And again, we, couldn't, we can't see what's happening. Saying, you are Peter, and he's pointing at Peter. And then he's pointing to himself and saying, and on this rock, I will build my church. After all, the Sermon on the Mount talks about the, the house that is built on the rock, right? So which is it? What is the rock that the church is built upon? 
Well, there's no denying that Peter has a part in the foundation of the church. And there's no denying that Peter's faith has a part in the foundation of the church. And there's no denying that Jesus is foundational to the church. But listen, this this little play on words isn't actually the point of this sentence. All right? The question is not, what role does Peter play in the church? That's only a question that we've been asking for 500 years. The point is Jesus builds his church. We'll learn more about the foundation of the church later. Ephesians chapter 2 will tell us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ is the cornerstone. That's true. And that's in Ephesians. And that's not the point of this verse. The point is that Jesus is establishing his church. Is Jesus going to use Peter? Absolutely he is. Read Acts chapter 2 tonight. Beginning at Pentecost and then moving out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world, Peter is one of the many preachers that God uses to establish the church. But Peter is not the focal point here. Jesus, in this verse, is shifting the focus from Peter and his confession to himself, to Christ himself. Jesus becomes the subject of the sentence, and what Jesus is going to do is the main verb. It's what we're supposed to look at. And what is Jesus going to do? He's going to build the church. David's son Solomon built the temple of the presence of God where Israel would gather for worship. David's promised son Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon, as Jesus has told us, is going to build the greater temple where the greater presence of God, where greater Israel will be gathered together for spirit-filled worship. And this assembly in the presence of God will not be limited to Jews, as Jesus showed us last chapter. This assembly will include all who are being brought into the kingdom. This assembly, this church, that's what the word church means, assembly, this assembly will be built from people. Living stones, as Peter will call it later. Living stones from the whole world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all whom the Father gives to the Son, the Son will use to build his church. That's what's happening here. That's the point. That's the point. I will build my church. So what does that tell us? What do we make of this? Well, a lot. <laughs> a lot. That, that there will even be a church at all. That's kind of a surprise announcement. Uh, an assembly. The only assembly they knew about was Israel's assembly. And now Jesus is saying, a new assembly is coming. A new building, a new temple is coming. So this is a huge announcement that is really paradigm shifting for anyone reading Matthew for the first time that understands the Old Testament. But on this side of Calvary, what's important to us is this. I'm just going to say it again. Jesus builds the church. Not me. 
It's not me who builds the church, it's Jesus. It's not the programs that you can come up with, that anybody can come up with. They don't build the church. It's Jesus. It's not even the apostles who build the church. It's Jesus who did establish, who did build, and who will continue to build His church. Now, obviously, this is talking about the universal church, that big, all Christians everywhere and at all times past and all times future church. But that big church, that universal church, includes our church. Includes our little churches, our local assemblies. And the fact that Jesus is building even our little church makes a big difference in how we think about who we are, doesn't it? It makes a big difference in how we think about what's happening even tonight when we're gathered. It's his church. He possesses us. He's built it. He will continue to build it. So it's not about what we like. It's not about what makes us feel good. It's not about us. It's not our church. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. We belong to him. We're living stones in his building, his temple. So we do what we're told. If he needs to cut off the edge of you in order to get you to fit better in this assembly, he has that authority and he will do it. Do not try to resist him. He's the builder, the master builder with the master plan. Jesus builds the church. It's his church. This assembly of blood-bought kingdom citizens, we are his plan. We are his bride. And our calling is to be faithful to him. Now that next clause, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, if you have the ESV or the KJV or the New King James, it says gates of hell. There's a footnote probably in your Bible, if you have one of those Bibles, and it says literally Hades. Most of your Bibles, if you have an NIV or New American Standard or a Christian Standard or a Holman Christian Standard, it says Hades. Most of your Bibles say the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And they do that because the Greek word here is actually Hades. Literally, it's Hades. That's what the word is. And Hades is the better word choice because Jesus doesn't mean here the place of eternal torment when he says the gates of Hades. What, what, that place of eternal torment, that's what we think of when we hear the word hell. At least, that's what I think of when I hear the word hell. Jesus isn't referring to that place. If he was referring to that place, he would have used a different word. He would have said Gehenna, but he didn't. He said Hades, and by that he means the place of the dead. In in the Hebrew Old Testament, so if you just flip back, and most books of the Old Testament have this word, Sheol. You ever seen that in your Bible? Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. That's the Hebrew Old Testament way of saying place of the dead. In fact, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is Hades. Okay, so Sheol, Hades, same thing. Place of the dead. So if you're reading your Old Testament and you see something like this, I feel I'm about to live my last days and go down to Sheol, that means I'm about to go down 
to the place of the dead. The only place in the entire Bible where we see anything about the gates of Sheol or the gates of Hades, well, there's actually two. One is here in Matthew 16. The other one is in Isaiah chapter 38. And we see that phrase, gates of Sheol or gates of Hades there. Isaiah 38, King Hezekiah. And I'm explaining this because I had no idea what this meant when I read it, and I'm assuming that you didn't know what it meant either. And we've always wondered, and so I've done the work for you to try to help you along. So Isaiah 38 is where we see gates of Hades. And in that place, King Hezekiah is bemoaning his sickness, his mortality. He thinks he's about to die. And so in Isaiah 38, verse 10 and 11, he says, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol or the gates of Hades. For the rest of my years, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. So what's he saying? I'm going to die. I'm going to go to that place where dead people are. Yes, that's okay. Not that one, though. Um, That's a different place. Um, The house of the rising sun. Right. (laughs) Not Sheol. In other words... Hezekiah is going to die and he's going to be locked up behind the gates of Sheol and those gates are meant to keep the dead in. All right, so when you think of gates around the place of the dead, what do they do? They keep dead people from coming back to life, from coming back into the the place where humans dwell. So with that in mind, let's look at our verse again. What is Jesus saying about the church? Death, that place, the realm of the dead, Hades, cannot hold the church. Those gates cannot hold the church. You cannot destroy the church. You cannot kill the church. The assembly that Christ is building will be indestructible, invincible, just as Christ himself will prove to be indestructible and invincible. If we were to keep reading in Matthew 16, and just ignore the verse numbers and the paragraph separations and the little titles, we would see right after Jesus says this, he's going to tell the disciples that he's going to die and on the third day be raised again. The gates of Hades, the place of death, will not be able to contain the Christ. Likewise, because the church is so much in union with Christ, those gates will not be able to hold the church. That's all he's saying, which is huge. And that should give you confidence. When it feels like the church is weak, that she's faltering, death cannot stop the church. Christ is building it. Christ is conquering through the church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath the feet of the church. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So when it seems like the church is being kept from thriving by this invisible little virus and this not-so-invisible overreach from the government, viruses cannot stop the church. Caesar cannot stop the church. 
No matter where you are or what century you are in, you can't kill the church. She just springs back to life over and over and over again. She's eternal. It's been said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. But what's more, it's not just that the church, by virtue of her identity in Christ, is always bursting forth from the gates of Hades. It's even bigger than that. The church is given the keys to the kingdom, the gates of the kingdom of heaven. So do you see the, the comparison here? Gates of Hades can't hold the church church is so powerful, so eternal through Christ, she breaks through the gates of death and is given the keys to eternal life, the kingdom of heaven. Look at the next verse, verse 19. And Jesus is still talking to Peter. But remember, Peter is the leader of the disciples. He's the spokesperson for them. He says to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I want to point out here, just because he's talking to Peter, doesn't mean he's restricting this authority to Peter. He's giving this authority to the church as a whole. And we know that because in just two chapters, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus tells us about how Christians are to handle disputes with one another, particularly when one Christian sins against another Christian. You might be familiar with this passage, given that we often sin against one another, and we need to refer to this passage a lot. If a, that's, a, that's a joke, but it's sadly true. If, if a brother sins against you, you confront him. This is what it says in Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, you confront him, and you seek reconciliation. If he blows you off, you take another brother or sister with you because you want reconciliation. You want to see this, this sin be confessed. If even then he won't listen, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And, and you should know, this is only the second time Jesus ever mentions the word church. These two passages, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, at least in the Gospels, Jesus says church many times through the apostles in the epistles. So Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if this brother will not listen even to the church, that is the assembly of believers, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, excommunicate this person. He doesn't belong to the church. He doesn't belong in the assembly. He is unrepentant. He has no place in Christ's kingdom. And look immediately Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, look what, look what we see there. Jesus will tell everyone else exactly what he told Peter. Truly I say to you all, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Exact same phrasing, exact same authority. So it's not just given to Peter, it's given to the church. This key-holding Binding and loosing authority isn't limited to Peter. It's given to the whole church, the assembly. Now, if you're like me, you're asking, okay, yeah, I get that, big deal. But what does binding and loosing mean? Because we don't use those words, ever. Well, it's applied differently in different contexts. It's a, it's a big, big idea. In the context of church discipline, in Matthew 18, the church has the authority to dismiss someone from the church. 
and to declare this person is not a kingdom citizen. Likewise, we'll see that the church has the authority on the other end to baptize people, thus declaring this person is a kingdom citizen. That should lead you to see that Christianity is not so much about your personal relationship with Jesus. It's between you and the church and Jesus. You don't walk through the garden alone with Jesus. You walk through the garden with the church and Jesus. There there are those who belong to the kingdom through their belonging to Christ and his body, the church, and there are those who do not belong to the kingdom. There is not another category. Let me say that again. There are those who belong to the kingdom through their belonging to Christ and his body, the church, and there are those who do not belong to the kingdom. Those are the two categories. The church that Jesus is establishing here, he's establishing as the earthly representation, the physical, visible representation of the kingdom of heaven. They're not equivalent. But it is a representation of the kingdom of heaven. And so what happens in the church, Jesus is saying, has very real, very eternal, very scary consequences. And if that sounds crazy to you and really foreign, you're like, Dustin's going Catholic on us? I'm not. I'm just saying what Jesus is saying. Think about it this way. Think about the influence that you already know that the church has. When the church teaches the whole counsel of God's word, And the church elevates Jesus Christ in worship and by the power of the Spirit preaches the gospel, the good news, week in and week out. What's happening? What's happening? Well, the kingdom of heaven is opened up to the people that gather there as they see and hear that message. And they say, God is really in this place. And when that church sees people come to saving faith through the Holy Spirit's power and the proclamation of the word, and when that church sees evidence of that faith, that church has the authority to declare that which is already true in the kingdom of heaven. This person is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You already know that. You already believe that, I hope. And on the, on the flip side, when the church sees someone hopelessly and continuously and unrepentantly straying from God and unabashedly bringing shame to the name of Jesus Christ, the church has the authority and the responsibility to declare what is true in heaven. That person is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Their allegiance is obviously not to Christ. That that should elevate the church's responsibility in your mind. I struggled with this passage thinking it can't mean that. It It can't mean that we have this great a role to play. But there's no other way of interpreting what Jesus has said plainly and what the rest of the New Testament teaches. I think one of of our greatest struggles with this is is that we are afraid of authority. 
I know I am. I struggle with authority. I, my, my nature is to rebel against authority. And so when I see something like this, I think it can't mean that. But it does. Jesus Christ has given this type of authority to the church. And listen, if you are in Christ, you're the church. This authority doesn't go to some guy with a funny hat in Rome. This authority goes to you if you're in Christ. And there's a great, great, great responsibility that comes with this, isn't there? If this is the very first time you've ever heard about what an important role the church has in the kingdom, all I can say is this, just keep coming, because this will not be the last time that you hear this. We're going to talk more about this when we get to chapter 18. The big idea, though, all right, there's the big idea. The disciples are being brought into the mission of Christ. They're being given authority, and as churches are planted all over the world, that authority is passed on to those local churches. So if you get nothing from this, get this. The church plays an enormous role in God's unfolding plan. Well, in the last verse, Jesus charges the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Now, why is that the case? Well, you know what? It's already 7.45. 16 chapters to get at this point. Jesus says, now keep quiet about this. Why does he do this? We'll talk about it next week, okay? So come back next week, and we'll start with verse 20, and you'll find out what I've already prepared to tell you, why Jesus tells them to keep it a secret. It's not that big of a deal. It's really connected to the next passage, but let's close in prayer, all right? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have revealed to us that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, for whoever is here right now, still struggling in their hearts with that reality, they don't, they, they, they kind of know it, but they know that their hearts are not given over to Jesus as king over them. They live in allegiance to many other kings. Lord, I pray that you would reveal Christ as king to them, Jesus as king to them, tonight. And that, that that burden that they carry of trying to find satisfaction in anything but Jesus Christ would be lifted and they would see that in Christ there is no burden. And then following this king there is joy, and peace, and a clear conscience. And following this king, there is righteousness and eternal life. Father, show them tonight. 